0: Good afternoon and welcome to our webcast, Disinformation amid the coronavirus pandemic. I'm Jill Doherty. I'm a Wilson Center Global Fellow, and I'll be moderating the discussion today. And we hope that everybody is staying safe and healthy and in close communication with your family and loved ones. It's uh, particularly important right now to remain abreast of developments, both domestically and internationally. And uh, critically, we need to better understand how information is used and misused to report on this pandemic. Today, we have three of our Woodrow Wilson Center experts here to discuss disinformation at a state level in Russia, Brazil, China, and beyond. And this discussion is a joint effort among our Kennan Institute, the Kissinger Institute on China and the United States, the Brazil Institute, and the Science and Technology Innovation Program. And it's a reminder, as if you need it, of why the Wilson Center is the number one-ranked think tank in regional studies for the third consecutive year. So our subject today, disinformation You know, at any time. Just, it's really crucial, but especially disinformation in the time of COVID-19 can be a matter, literally, of life and death. It's a complex issue, and I thought a lot about how to kind of get our heads around it, and I decided that maybe we could frame it, frame it from two angles, two prisms, let's say, disinformation and the disease itself, in other words, What is this virus? How does it spread? How many people are affected? How do you protect yourself, etc.? And then the second would be political and geopolitical prison ways that this virus is being used and also exploited. And you know, I could add a third part to this, which, which would be countries can not only produce disinformation, they can also be the victims of it. So, with that, Let's turn to our speakers. And a reminder we're going to field questions today by email, and that is kennan at dot org, or you can tweet to at the Wilson Center. And please, when you do that, include your name and affiliation in your questions. So, our experts. The uh, first one is Nina Jankowitz. She is a disinformation fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center's Science and Technology Innovation Program. She studies the intersection of democracy and technology in Central and Eastern Europe. And her book, How to Lose the Information War, which is a great title, is gonna be published by Bloomsbury's uh, IB Taurus in spring, not too long from now of this year. And I have already, Nina, ordered my copy in advance. And our second guest and expert is Ray Zhang. She is associate for the Kissinger Institute on China in the United States. Her research interests include China's role in the East Asian political economy and how nationalist interests can impact business, technology, and cultural policies. She has an MA from Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and a BA in International Studies from Emory and has completed coursework at Peking University. And then finally, female Mengshu, but not least, is Anya Prusa. And she is a senior associate at the Brazil Institute She, uh, before she joined the Wilson Center in 2016, Anya worked for the Albright Stonebridge Group, which is a strategic consulting firm, and also for the US Department of State's Office of Brazilian and Southern Cone Affairs. And she lived in Sao Paulo for several years. She's a specialist in Brazilian public policy and US-Brazil relations. So, let's begin. And, you know, I tried to, to get a big question to kind of kick this off. And here it is. And I'm going to begin with Nina. Um, From your perspective, is there something unique about the disinformation in the time of COVID-19, or are we seeing many of the same techniques that we've seen before? Nina?
1: Thank you, Jill. And it's a pleasure to be here today on this fabulous all-female panel. Uh, only the Wilson Center could put something like this together. And it's it's a pleasure to be here. I hope everyone is staying safe and healthy. Um, I think what is unique about the COVID-19 crisis is that it is literally affecting everyone around the world and that everyone is feeding on the same fears for their own health, for their loved one's health. And there's this lack of information because of the novelty of this virus. And that is why it's such a fertile ground for disinformers of all stripes, not only uh, foreign disinformation, but also domestic disinformation, your normal hucksters who are trying to peddle snake oil and miracle cures on the internet. This is fertile ground for everyone. And I think that is the the unique thing. On the other hand, I have been a bit frustrated um, that everyone seems to be reacting as as if uh, they're surprised that disinformation (laughs) is being peddled during this crisis because the the thing that makes it similar to past disinformation crises is the fact that disinformation runs on emotion and although you know we have shortages of toilet paper and pasta right now we don't have shortages of emotion in this crisis Uh, and that all of all of the best disinformation is grounded in that emotional visceral truth and that's what draws people to it Um, certainly that's how Russian disinformation has worked for the past 10 to 15 years not only here in the United States if you look at uh, the Mueller report and all of the advertisements and posts that were made around the 2016 election all of those were grounded in these very emotional hot button issues but if you look at the work that Russia did uh, in its near abroad, in countries like Estonia and Georgia, uh, Czech Republic, um, all of the issues that the Russian Internet Research Agency uh, and Russian security services have been pushing related uh, in their disinformation game have all been grounded in that emotional truth. So I think that's a really important point. We're not talking about fakes. We're talking about things that are very, very real to people. And that's what draws them in and manipulates them. And that's why I've been advocating for something that I call uh, informational distancing, just like we have social distancing, uh, with regard to keeping the virus at bay. We need some informational distancing in order to push back against these narratives of disinformation that have been proliferating over the past couple weeks. So I think my advice to everyone is if you are reading something, uh, that seems to be good, too good to be true, or you feel your emotions rising, you are probably being manipulated and it's time to put that device down and walk away. Um, with regard to Russia specifically, we've seen a couple of reports coming out or being leaked uh, from the Global Engagement Center at the State Department, which deals with uh, disinformation, as well as the EU's External Action Service had a, had a report that uh, the, many of the European papers were reporting on a couple of weeks ago um, that said, you know, of course, Russia is using this moment, capitalizing on this moment. And that's not surprising at all to me. Again, Russia uh, operates on our fissures in our society. Um, and uses and exploits these moments in order to drive more division, uh, not only within America, but certainly within the European Union. Um, But it's not just about creating that chaos and creating that division this time. I think a lot of the audience for that propaganda, that disinformation, isn't necessarily just Americans or just Western Europeans. It's also Russians. Uh, because Putin has a crisis on his hands, uh, just like every other country does. And he is now trying to grapple with his handling of the crisis. So the more that he can make the United States and Western Europe seem like they are not living up to what their citizens are expecting, the better that looks for him at home. And that's why I think we saw this uh, delivery of aid, not only to Italy, where all of the aid was emblazoned with from Russia with love in English and Italian, but also the aid that was delivered to the United States late last week, which we may or may not have paid for, reports are differing. (laughs) But uh, still, that is a PR win for him. Um, And he's able to point to that as you know the russian uh, public health system is dealing with many of the same challenges that we are here with personal protective equipment etc cetera, etc cetera. And he's able to say, well, you know, the Americans, the Europeans aren't doing a very good job with this either. Uh, At least I am able to provide these basic services for you. And this is why, you know, you should buy into this authoritarian regime that I have built over the last 20 years. So again, thinking about the audience is really important. It's not just Americans. It's not just Europeans. But it reflects back to Putin's position at home. And I will leave it there.
0: Okay, great. Thank you very much, Nina. And now let's move on to Ray Zhang. Uh, Ray, obviously we know that it's believed that the uh, virus began in China. And there were early stories, dis- disinformation stories, coming out of China, but also coming out of other countries, that it was a bioweapon, that it was created by the United States military, etc. cetera. But let me return to that question that I began with. Um, is there a difference, something unique about the disinformation that you're seeing uh, coming from the government in China um, during this COVID-19 crisis or pandemic, or is it kind of the same thing that has happened before?
2: So China is very unique as a disinformation case because it is both a producer of disinformation, uh, but also it's a target of disinformation as the first country that was hit by the COVID-19 outbreak. And I think that both of these roles as the producer of disinformation and as a target of disinformation has effectively slowed down the flow of information. So before I describe you know, China's disinformation ecosystem, I want to talk a little bit about Xi Jinping's role in COVID-19. She is very selective about how he presents himself publicly. He doesn't hold you know daily or regular press conferences. He often delegates uh, regular interactions with domestic and foreign media to others within the government and party apparatus but at the same time, he also tries to sort of project a certain image. And that image is somebody that's sort of like a fatherly sage, a rational actor, maybe doesn't play up the machismo quite as much as Putin or Bolsonaro or Trump, but he wants to sort of project that rational actor image. However, in this case, she really did kind of hedge his, per- his appearances in um, action and didn't appear at the center of coronavirus fighting efforts until March when he visited Wuhan. So this piece of information is something that's actually censored, even though people um, are able to sort of piece it together through uh, looking at media. Um, So with that note, let me sort of describe, you know, what's been happening in, in China. So disinformation in China starts first and foremost at the domestic level. So what this means is that from a top-down perspective, you have uh, state media, you have the Official Propaganda Bureau, you have the Cyber State Administration, all of these agencies co-opt, control, and shape the narrative as time goes on. To give you an example, let's talk about Li Wenmao. He is a doctor that has been described in China as a whistleblower, In December, he sent information to his WeChat contacts of SARS-like symptoms in his patients. Um, Later on, he uh, was treating patients and was infected by COVID-19 and has since unfortunately passed away. Um, After his death, there was an outburst of anger within Chinese social media. And um, how the party managed this potential political problem is that recently Lee was officially labeled as a martyr. And this is important because China actually has defamation laws that apply to martyrs. And so information related to martyrs, discourse related to martyrs are scrutinized more under the law. So what happens is that he's essentially been looped back into the favorable political narrative of the CCP as a loyalist, as a hero, and he's given an official uncomplicated story that there isn't much wiggle room to deviate from. Um, So just to sort of cap off my um, research on domestic disinformation, there have been a lot of mechanisms enacted by the Cyberspace Administration of China, which is what a lot of tech technology analysts watch in terms of um, policing and censorship. There's been a marked increase in more aggressive censorship efforts starting in early March, including account deletions, limiting uh, WeChat users ability to post um, information or discussions. Um, And earlier today, the state media bureau, Xinhua, published an official timeline starting in December, uh, stretching all the way until uh, Wuhan's shutdown, that is a list of events that's thought to be the definitive party narrative. This leaves out certain um, actions by the central government and by the Wuhan government, but it's not only a narrative in and of itself, but also a Set of guidelines on what China is going to encourage people to post and discuss and what it discourages people from um, posting and discussing. So, let me use uh, the remainder of my time to talk about China as a target of disinformation. So, China, uh, because of its source, because it's known as the source of COVID 19 early on, you had a lot of uh, photos or information um, that spread virally, including one photo of a woman that was eating um, some kind of dish in Southeast Asia that was made out of bats. Uh, This plus the information that, you know, the disease sprung out of a seafood market eventually went viral, fan xenophobia in the United States and Europe. And even as time has passed, we've seen disinformation actors talking about China, try to use grains of truth, such as China's official statistics being off, to try to uh, inflate death totals, to very arbitrarily set numbers, to try to link it to Uh, labs, one way or another. And um, a lot of this really, really slows down the ability for, you know, even good reporting and media analysis to
0: get done. Thanks. Hmm. That's really fascinating. Um, Let's move on to Brazil. So, Anya, Anya Prusa. Um, Anya, you know, if you look at what uh, Jair Bolsonaro, the president, has been doing, it's been a lot of denial. I mean, initially, he was saying it's, it's no big deal, it's not really happening. He went out to greet people, I've read, in uh, cities around the country, shaking hands, meeting with people, et cetera. And, uh, and yet, the, there, the uh, virus does exist, and I'm presuming that there is some type of disinformation going on. Could you run us through what's happening in Brazil? Going back to that original question about whether it's different this time, but also that kind of you know, domestic and international prison? Certainly, Jill, it's a great
3: question. So the presence of disinformation, as Nina said, is not a surprise. Um, we know Brazil is heavily saturated when it comes to social media. The country is Facebook's fourth largest market and Brazilians spend roughly four hours a day on social media, those of them who are online. And in recent years we've also seen numerous disinformation campaigns in brazil everything from the spread of fake news during the 2018 uh, election cycle to disinformation about uh, the vaccine against yellow fever so again the fact that there is disinformation isn't a surprise what's unique and i think jill this really ties back to your point that getting information, correct information to people in this sort of public health crisis is a matter of life and death. What we are seeing is that the response in Brazil to the presence and spread of disinformation has actually been very active, very concerted to try to contain that and to get the right information into the hands of citizens. Um, And this is something new that we're seeing in Brazil. So first of all, as you mentioned, the president of Brazil is playing an active role uh, in generating and sharing disinformation about public health recommendations uh, at this moment. Um, He's emerged over the course of the last month as one of the most well-known skeptics, as you mentioned. Uh, He's downplayed the seriousness of the disease, calling it a little cold and hysteria. He's blamed the press Uh, for overstating the the seriousness of this health crisis and he's been actively discouraging social distancing and other non-pharmaceutical interventions uh, undermining in fact his own health minister's recommendations as a result what brazilians are seeing is not a unified government message they're seeing confusing messages they're seeing conflict and that's not reassuring right for people who Want to look towards their government as a source of advice and a source of, uh, of response, of action to combat the spread of coronavirus. Um, strangely enough, Bolsonaro was actually one of the first world leaders to be publicly tested for coronavirus. Uh, numerous members of his delegation uh, tested positive following a dinner with President Trump at Mar a Lago in early March. Um, and as you might remember, the fallout from that actually led to President Trump eventually being tested as well. But whereas we've seen President Trump and other leaders such as Anlo in Mexico take a more serious tone in the last week or two, Bolsonaro has really doubled down. Um, there are a number of possible reasons, and I'd be happy to discuss that in the Q&A session. Um, for now, I think what's important to note is that 33% of Brazilians still think Bolsonaro's response to the crisis is good or great. And that's according to a poll that was done just a few days ago. So his message has weight. He is reaching a large share of the Brazilian population. Um, He has 12 million followers on president, and he also has the power of the presidency uh, to carry his message. And so the message that he's spreading matters, right? Lives are at stake. As a result, what we've seen within Brazil is a broad effort to contain the spread of disinformation and to in fact restrict Bolsonaro's ability to create and implement policies that are based in disinformation or inaccurate unsubstantiated uh, facts. So first of all, the media in Brazil has been working diligently to fact check the president's statements and statements from his allies. We saw Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter actually have been removing posts by Bolsonaro that run counter to the World Health Organization's recommendations to self-isolate. Facebook, for example, said that the post violated its community standards, which, and I quote, do not allow disinformation that might cause real damage to people. And so I think that gets back to the question of what is unique about this crisis, right? This is a case where disinformation causes real damage damage that people can see that you can count in terms of the number of people who, who might be dying, right? Because of the coronavirus.
0: Yeah, I'm
3: oh, sorry. Go ahead. And I was just gonna say then, we're seeing at the government level as well, um, both state and federal in the Congress and in the courts, that a number of political actors from all parties in Brazil, including former allies of Bolsonaro, have been moving as well to try to contain and correct and share good information to help people um, kind of stop the spread.
0: Hmm. Very interesting, and that's something I do want to pick up on. But I just want to put a little advertisement out there that we have questions that anybody in the audience, and it's a very large audience, uh, can send to us. So email you can email kenan@wilsoncenter.org, or you can tweet at the Wilson Center. So, and again, name if you could an affiliation in your questions. Let me just pick up on that, especially that last comment by Anya. Nina, returning to you, you know, usually the paradigm is kind of like, let's say a state uses disinformation to harm another state. And then it has internal, um, let's say propaganda to make the leader look good or something like that. But in this case, If the leader gives incorrect information, as we are seeing in Brazil, and it it could be in other countries as well, um, it potentially harms the people, his fellow citizens. So it would seem that that would hurt a leader, ultimately. So how do you explain what's going on here? Seems very contradictory.
1: You know, that's a great question, Jill, and I'm not sure I can explain it. I think, again, uh, the uniqueness of this crisis to me is... Uh, the fear and the emotion that is driving people's informational consumption habits. And so if they're hearing a message from a leader, whether that leader is uh, here or abroad, uh, whether it's a politician or an expert uh, or someone who is, you know, uh, trying to look like an expert, um, if that's a message of reassurance, I think people want to cling to those messages right now. Um, And that's why it's so, so important that we are not politicizing this crisis, whether it's, you know, again, foreign or or domestic purveyors of disinformation, we should be listening to experts. And experts in this case are not politicians and pundits, they are scientists and doctors. Uh, We need to be vetting our information, and if we don't feel that we can do that, uh, again, that's the time to to step back. Um, And we really need our politicians to recognize that being and spreading uh, disinformation at this time is an extremely irresponsible thing to do that is going to cost people's lives and that they need to be taking extra precautions on top of everything else that they already do in order to be uh, spreading information that's trustworthy Um, and that goes for any any you know sort of crisis uh, whether that is an election Uh, something to do with national security, but especially things to do with health, because these are, again, uh, as you very rightly pointed out, people's lives in in their hands. Um, And I think that's one reason, as Anya was speaking about before, we're seeing the social media companies take more action than we've seen in the past. And I, I commend them for that, and I hope that they are able to uh, to rally around that sort of spirit uh, in the future, because a lot of the electoral decisions we make, for instance, that can be affected by disinformation are having a direct effect uh, on people's livelihoods and actually their health right now as well. So it's all connected.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, Ray and Anya, let's start with Ray. Do you have a reaction to that? And um, I have kind of a secondary question there, which is in the United States, President Trump is framing this as a war and that he is a wartime president. Do, uh, let's, If we start with Ray, what is happening in China? Is it being depicted as a war or something else?
2: Well, she himself in a speech on uh, the coronavirus described it as a people's war on the coronavirus and um, deployed some uh, People's Liberation Army resources towards it. You also have, in addition to the valorizing of uh, doctors like Li Wenliang, the um, usage of you know doctors and nurses in what is called positive energy propaganda. So this type of information um, real and pr really um is aimed at really um lifting up perspectives and human interest style stories of people sort of going above and beyond and they are going above and beyond this isn't disinformation in of itself but when it's deployed in a way to divert conversations from the systemic problems that um, allowed the coronavirus to get to the degree that it um, infected um, Wuhan, then um, it starts being kind of problematic in um, obscuring certain types of critical information uh, that really. Um, in an ideal world should be um, going freely through China. And for doctors and nurses specifically, the concern that they were not allowed to talk about the virus freely was a critical, critical concern throughout uh, the entirety of China's response to COVID-19.
0: Okay. And Anya, what are you picking up now from how we're moving into this conversation? Yes.
3: So Brazil, um, there's been this split between the way President Bolsonaro has reacted and the way that the rest of the government at the state and at the federal level has reacted. So the Brazilian Congress is taking this very seriously. um, And they recently passed what they are calling a war budget. So they see this very much as a wartime fight where they need to mobilize all of the country's resources to confront this challenge. Um, You know, President Bolsonaro, on the other hand, again, does not Uh, take this quite so seriously. And I think for him, you know, part of it is that he is weighing the fact that he was elected on a mandate to restore Brazil's economic growth. So perhaps in his mind, what he is most worried about is the economy and the economic fallout that you might see, right, from shutting down businesses, from shutting down the economy. And he's very focused on that, Um, you know, this idea that the cure can't be worse than the disease. Um, that said, I think if you look at his approval numbers, which are falling, and you look at the approval numbers of leaders who have stepped up and who have said that this is a fight, this is a war, and their numbers are actually going up, um, you know, it's, it's still early to assess what the political implications, what the political fallout might be for Bolsonaro, but certainly at this moment, leaders are being rewarded for taking this crisis seriously.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I think we're, uh, we're going to move. We're about halfway here. So let's move to some questions, which I'm getting on my trusty phone here. And um, uh, so feel free, but let me remind you again, if you have questions, email at kennan at wilsoncenter.org or tweet at the Wilson Center. So here are a few that have come in. Um, this is from Karen Giles from Chatham House who himself is an expert on disinformation. He says, Mark Galliati in yesterday's Moscow Times suggested that Russia's loose hole, hold on its freelancing disinformation machine meant that it's now working against Russian state interests because of a lack of coordination with the aid charm offensive. And he paints a plausible picture of this disinformation ecosystem as out of control, kind of as as he puts it here, a self-licking lollipop. Do you buy that? Nina, this is probably for you. Do you buy that? Or do you think that all Russian disinformation efforts are still carefully and centrally directed at this moment?
1: Thank you, Kier. I'm glad that you uh, tuned in. Good to hear from you. And Jill, I would love for you to weigh in on this question (laughs) afterward as well, because you are are one of the foremost Russia experts that we have in this town. Uh, I have never thought that the the Russian disinformation machine has been a carefully curated uh, and well-oiled car. Uh, I have always described it as spaghetti at the wall. And I think given the Italian uh, issue that that we're bringing up, this is an apt metaphor. So um, there are a lot of different parts of the russian disinformation machine of course we have the internet research agency which is not a government agency although of course uh, prigozhin who who runs it has very close ties to the government there are the security services uh, there are the propagandists on russian television they're not uh, crossing, you know, the cleared lines together and running them up through the Kremlin clear- clearance process, right? They know vaguely uh, the the lines that they should be pushing. And I totally agree with Mark in in his great op-ed for the Moscow Times that, um, that you know, it's really hard to stop that ball once it starts rolling down the hill. Uh, do I think that it's necessarily working against Russian interests, Russian state interests? That I'm not so sure. I think, oops, I think we, um, because he is, uh, you know, undermining credibility from the United States about its capacity to handle crises like this. And I think that's very useful to him. Um, Jill, I would love to hear your thoughts.
0: <laughs> Actually, I pretty much agree with what you're talking about. Um, I think I would add one point, which is President Putin himself has kind of pulled himself out of a lot of the messaging on this. He delivered, he's delivered a couple of speeches to the country uh, pretty straight ahead, Um, not too much uh, of anything other than straight information and urging people to listen to the authorities, but essentially he is not taking a very active role in framing this entire uh, crisis or discussion, uh, the, and you add to that the very robust uh, social media presence that Russians have. So I'm I, not quite sure they know where this is all going, and I do think that the government has to at least uh, give the impression and and actually listen to what people are saying. So um, I want to hear from our other experts. Though I have another question. Um, Let's see who might be able to answer this. It's important. Um, Would you please discuss the situation in Hungary? And of course, what we're talking about, this is from Victoria Phillips. Um, uh, She's referring, of course, to the leader of Hungary, uh, Viktor Orban, who has used this to begin to control society in, um, let's say, uh, well, to, to begin to control society, to, to pass laws, et cetera, and crack down on an open society, which he has been doing all the while. Anybody want to take that question?
1: Uh, if, if Ray or Anya uh, don't want to, Ray, did you, did you want to jump in?
2: I can uh, follow up to uh, your comment.
1: Sure. Well, I I would just say, Jill, I think you framed that perfectly. Um, The slow creeping of autocracy in Hungary has been happening uh, since the beginning of Orban's term, which at this point is close to 10 years ago, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and you know they've, they've clamped down on the courts, they've clamped down on free media, they've clamped down on civil society, and this is just another uh, way to clamp down on democracy in Hungary. Uh, the thing that is very concerning about the measures that were passed is that they have no sunset clause. So uh, they've used the crisis in order uh, to create a reason Uh, to give the president more powers. And uh, now that that has happened, he might just keep those for himself for uh, as long as he's in office. And that's what's extremely concerning, I think, to the human rights community.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, Here's a question from Twitter, Desiree Zamorano. Um, She says, what do these leaders have to gain by ignoring or downplaying the seriousness of this virus? Excellent basic question. Anya, would you like to take that? Sure.
3: I think President Bolsonaro in Brazil uh, certainly does not want to be responsible for whatever economic fallout might happen. We know in Brazil that many people are already losing their jobs. Uh, many people have had to shut down their businesses. There's real concerns. Um, when you look at a country where a quarter of the population was living in poverty and many more were living you know, week to week, um, you know, barely able to kind of meet their basic expenses. And so when you look at the president's political calculus, um, he certainly doesn't want to own whatever might happen to the economy. And so perhaps, you know, his strategy is to try to to deny what's happening, right? And then, then say, well, you know, it wasn't on me. I, I tried. To keep the economy going i tried to keep businesses open i was overruled you know vote them out not me
0: okay well we're getting quite a lot of questions uh just a reminder again email kenan at wilsoncenter.org or you can tweet at the wilson center here is one from uh let's see santa barbara uh jack friedlander who was with the santa barbara uh, chapter of the committee on foreign relations What are examples of Russia's and China's disinformation campaign in the US regarding COVID-19? What recommendations do you propose the Trump administration in general, and President Trump in particular, take to counter this information? Uh, I think I'm going to give that to Ray.
2: So I would say that you can't really talk about COVID-19 and U.S.-China relations without talking about a pivotal figure in U.S.-China discourse, and this would be Mr. Zhao Lijian. Uh, Mr. Zhao was formerly a bureaucrat stationed in China's Pakistan embassy. He is now a spokesperson at the Chinese Foreign Ministry, where he shares duties with a lot of Um, spokespeople that journalists are very familiar with. If you're not super familiar with Chinese press conferences, they sling a lot of biting comments in the direction of the United States. Zhao, though, is also known for having a very, very active Twitter account. And so one snafu that he's run into is he's been spreading a conspiracy theory that military exercises held in November between the People's Liberation Army and the U.S. military was where the disease started. This doesn't really have a solid informational basis. And what resulted was that a series of retaliatory policies um, has resulted in essentially the press expulsions of all American passport holders of some of the US's biggest newspapers, New York Times, Mm -hmm. Wall Street Journal, Time Magazine, uh, Washington Post. Uh, At this point in time, Zhao and other diplomats appeared not to be uh, in any position close to swerving from this really aggressive social media communication strategy in the medium to long term. And um, What I would characterize the Trump administration and the Xi administration as right now are uh, two administrations where hawks are sort of at the wheel. Um, The best sort of um, ideal scenario would be for um, better transparency between China and the United States. But in terms of where things stand right now, uh, they have a lot of things sort of preventing productive conversations.
0: Mm -hmm. Here's a question from um, a student at George Washington University, Catherine Walker. Are there any examples of effective ways citizens of Brazil, China, and Russia have been pushing back against disinformation in their countries? And I know Anya uh, did mention some of that. Anya, would you like to kind of start and, and say, get a little bit more specific on what citizens can do and then anybody else can chime in?
3: Certainly. Uh, so in Brazil, perhaps one of the most emblematic protests of disinformation we've been seeing um, is during President Bolsonaro's uh, statements to the, to the public, um, Brazilians are going to the windows and they're banging pots and pans to drown out his words. And this is a traditional form of protest that you've seen in Brazil in the past, um, but it's being used repeatedly. Uh, and has been over the last couple weeks as a form of protest uh, for the president's words. More uh, concretely, I think, in terms of refuting what the president is saying, uh, there are a number of fact-checking organizations, consortiums of journalists in Brazil that are doing incredible work to research the president's statements and other pieces of disinformation that are being put out um, and to show why the information is inaccurate or misleading and to show what is actually correct. For example, we saw a case uh, a few weeks ago where President Bolsonaro um, stated that there was a a food shortage in Belo Horizonte, and we saw a journalist go to the actual facilities where there was supposed to be this food shortage and show that there was actually food there, right? Um, And so I think journalists are doing a really good job trying to make sure that the public have accurate information and i just want to stress that in brazil i think what we are seeing is democracy working where the people have a voice where the other branches of power also have a voice so we've seen the judiciary for example say that president bolsonaro uh, can't share messages that are against social distancing and we've seen congress take measures to shorten the, the period of review for presidential decrees to speed up the congressional review process so that if the president signs a decree that is not based on on, um, you know, public health recommendations, the best practices as we know them, Congress can act more quickly um, to kind of fix those measures before they become law. So I think in Brazil, there are a number of ways where we are seeing People, the citizens broadly, but also the levers of government working to contain the spread of disinformation.
0: Mm -hmm. Anya, could I follow up very quickly Mm -hmm. on that? So, Congress has to define what is or isn't fake news? (laughs) So, um,
3: essentially, Congress has chosen, and this is nonpartisan, right? We're seeing this across the board, both the House and the Senate, all parties, uh, including President Bolsonaro's allies uh, in the Brazilian Congress, have chosen to follow uh, public health guidelines from the World Health Organization, right? And and they're saying that these are the best practices, and this is what we're going to do to try to minimize the loss of life and to minimize as well um, the broader damage to society. And so when Decrees have been issued by the president that run counter to public health guidelines, for example, uh, saying that people can continue going to church, right, or encouraging other types of mass gatherings. Um, Congress, as well as the judiciary, have been acting to say, no, these run counter to public health guidelines. And so we do not want this to happen. It is not in the public good.
0: That's quite impressive. Uh, We have a question that kind of flows from that, talking about um, Russia. So maybe we're back to Nina again. This is coming from Lori Brown, who's with the American Chemical Society. And uh, she says, has the delivery of personal protective equipment, PPE, from Russia to the United States been met with pride that they're able to bail out the United States, or anger that they gave up important supplies to treat the disease in Russia. In other words, was this an effective tool for the Putin uh, regime? You know?
1: I think that is a great question and hits the nail on the head uh, with the difficulty and the irony of this move by Putin and the Russian government. Um, on the one hand, you're seeing the Russian state media talking a lot about uh, how you know the Russian government has essentially... From uh, it, it, I think the irony is really important to note here. In 2012, of course, kicked out uh, USAID, the US Agency Interna- for International Development, uh, from Russia, saying that it was no longer an aid receiving country. It didn't need the help anymore. And now here is Russia helping the United States uh, in a time of, of great need. And we do need that aid. It is important to note that. However, uh, we should not have let it be a PR coup for Russia. Uh, and we were kind of trying to clean up after the fact and issuing the statement that, you know, we bought this. It wasn't aid, um, but uh, Lori's point is really important. That Russian doctors right now are having the same shortages of PPE. Uh, in fact, in probably to the same degree, especially in Russia's regions, there have been a lot of reports about that. Uh, that you know they're struggling the same way that our doctors and nurses are. Um, I think it depends. People's anger depends on who they are and what types of media they consume. And unfortunately, the Kremlin has a pretty... Uh, strong hold on independent media in in Russia. It barely exists. Although there have been some really great investigative uh, outlets doing reports on the shortages, and it they're uh, as Anya was talking about in Brazil. I think they are the front line of defense against Russian government propaganda toward its own citizens. However, uh, there are a lot of people who don't access those media. Those media are mostly online. Uh, they're not going to see those reports on Russian Channel One. And so, if you look at what's happening on Channel One and, and other Russian state media, uh, it is singing the praises of Russian aid that was sent to the United States. And they, the Russian government, are still saying that it was aid and that, the Russian, th- that we split the costs of it. It wasn't uh, something that w- the U.S. government bought entirely. Um, so they're certainly trying to uh, put a positive spin on this. Um, and I think that shows that it wasn't just out of pure humanitarian reasons. Uh, there was PR value to this move as well.
0: Yeah, there's no question that Russia, even before this, has been using foreign aid. Uh, I'm thinking Syria with you know, uh, aid to the people that was brought in, lots of pictures of white trucks.
1: And Ukraine as well.
0: Ukraine, yeah. So it has happened before. Um, Ray, I, here's a question that might, it's, it's a question that is always asked about disinformation, going back centuries. <laughs> Uh, But it it, it takes, I think, importance, a little more importance right now. So here it is, Um, Dr. PJ Makish, National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence, asks, if you could land changes at a huge USG, US government level, what is a slate of national recommendations that you would make to change the game of state level disinformation from China and Russia against the US? How can we turn the tide? Now, that, as I said, is a question that you could have asked a year ago at a disinformation conference. But let's take it right now—you know—very actually with COVID. Is there anything that any government could be taking, but especially here in the states, to um, fight back against any type of disinformation?
2: I think uh, right now, if if I were to think about what Chinese government or other disinformation agents might be focusing on with regard to the United States. It's the information environment as it exists in the United States right now. Um, What we've seen in the United States was what many are perceiving as a very slow response. There are a lot of um, issues of PPE accessibility. Um, And one thing that China specifically has taken advantage a lot is the idea that China, you know, quote unquote bought, uh, you know, lead time for the United States. And now the United States is responding in a way that it's kind of treading water in a lot of states. So this is definite. I I definitely agree with the uh, idea that COVID-19 and the disinformation associated with it is a really big security issue. Um, But a lot of the responses, I think, are going to have to start at the domestic level because it is at this sort of domestic level where you have um, different governors of US states uh, establishing connections with suppliers, some in China, commercial sector, some in China's governmental sector. And uh, in terms of disinformation, this can be really easily propagandized uh, into content, mostly still for China's domestic spaces, but at the same time, um, making use of these um, policy implementation gaps as they exist in the US domestically.
1: Mm -hmm. Jill, can I jump in really quickly? Absolutely. I think one thing that we're really overlooking, you know, there's often when we talk about disinformation, a desire to either ban uh, Chinese um, or Russian media from coming to our press briefings and things like that. There's a desire to really push back strongly against the state organs. I think one of the most important things that we could be doing right now as a government is to be communicating more effectively and transparently about this crisis. Uh, We still see President Trump giving his press briefings every day. I am glad there is a desire to inform the people. I am not sure that is necessarily the motivation behind those briefings, Um, but the thing that I, that worries me the most about them is that he and the administration are not necessarily on the same page about their talking points, so people are come away confused, and B, they're not modeling good behavior at those briefings. They should not be holding them in person anymore. Uh, as much as they are trying to socially distance the reporters in the room, people are putting their lives at risk, inc- including the life of the president and, and the doctors who are advising him. A lot of other countries are doing these briefings digitally. We're doing this briefing digitally. I think we need to model that good behavior and continue to communicate transparently, to prioritize experts and scientists over politicians and pundits. And uh, if we start to do that, we will have uh, put ourselves on a different informational footing um, than a lot of the other countries who are dealing with this crisis. And I hope to start to see that in the future.
0: Well, Nina, you were uh, reading my thoughts because that is the question I was going to ask. So I will ask it and then maybe Ray and Anya, could answer it. Changing the perspective a little, I should say, this is Tracy Brown, Associated Press, Washington DC. Changing the perspective a little, from your guests' different perspectives, can they speak about their assessment as to whether the Trump administration has used information and used it effectively in the coronavirus outbreak? So Ray, would you like to answer that?
2: Sure, I think that in terms of uh, China policy, there was a lot of time spent uh, trying and, and still being spent trying to, you know, pinpoint China as the origin source and to try to hold China accountable for disinformation. Um, and it is certainly an important thing to try to clarify. With regards to US-China relations, what I am finding a little bit puzzling is the choice to use that front and center as a foreign policy priority right now. China will still have the same government because Xi Jinping doesn't have term limits um, way down the road for this issue to get hashed out. But what really confuses me right now is the decision to prioritize it over testing, treatment, uh, and quarantine center uh, construction. Foreign policy is important. Um, you're not gonna find anybody disagreeing with that at the Wilson Center, but holding, holding China to accountability is certainly something that you could easily do a couple months from now after the uh, case numbers in the United States have dropped.
0: Mm-hmm. And Anya?
3: I think the challenge, which we've seen in the US and we see in Brazil as well, is when you have a leader who doesn't necessarily agree with his advisors, that then you do get a mixed message and you do get confusion. And, and people who are turning towards their president as a source of information for how they should act and how seriously they should take the crisis, walk away uncertain of what they should be doing. And when you're facing a global health crisis, the last thing you want is, is people to be uncertain of what they should be doing or uncertain of what actions they can take, because that will either lead to panic if people have extreme reactions, or that will lead to them not reacting at all and going about their daily life. Um, And so I think from a communications perspective, what you really need is a unified message from the government. And in Brazil in particular, that's still not the case. I think here in the US we're seeing Trump and his advisors uh, getting on the same page as the public health experts. And in Brazil, we've yet to see that happen between President Bolsonaro and his own public health team, including his Minister of Health.
0: All right. You know, I'm looking at the clock. We have exactly five minutes. And in this case, it's going to be, as we say in the business, a hard out because it has to stop exactly at the top of the hour. So I'm going to talk really fast and ask the very last question. And you have like... Two and a half seconds to answer, but if you can keep it brief, I'd appreciate it. But it's for all of you. There's a misconception that authoritarian regimes handle the crisis better than democratic regimes. Do you think authoritarianism is going to have a comeback? And that's via Twitter from Nada Alwadi. And let's start with Nina.
1: Sure. So I think, uh, you know, I'm certainly worried by some of the reactions in more authoritarian states. We talked about Hungary already. One thing we have not talked about is uh, how Russia is using facial recognition technology in order to uh, keep people at home uh, in obeying the self isolation rules, uh, also using a lot of tracking and and digital technologies, which I'm sure Ray can speak about as well. Uh, And people are willing to give up those rights in times of crises. And I think that's something that we should continue. Continue uh, to to really speak strongly against um, because as I mentioned in my remarks just before transparency and clear uh, honest communication that's one of the best uh, antidotes to disinformation so I hope we continue to see that as we go forward in this crisis and we can stand to improve our own response here in the United States as well. All right, and Ray.
2: So as somebody who does China analysis and casually observes politics in other Asian states. In Asia, we've seen uh, a a range of responses and resulting um, outcomes of COVID-19 responses. You have authoritarian states like Vietnam, and sometimes even within China, like provinces like um, Guangdong, respond fairly quickly, mobilize, you know, quarantine procedures fairly quickly. And in other places like Japan, you have certain interests that even though it's a, it's a democratic state, um, they wanted to go ahead with the Tokyo 2020 Olympics and delayed testing. And so, um, it's, it's, it is, a factor that authoritarian versus democratic politics can play in COVID-19 responses, but also their specific policy priorities and the specific political dimensions within each state.
0: All right, and Anya, you've got about a minute. (laughs) I would just say that I
3: think democracies aren't necessarily worse off when it comes to to responding, but also I think, um, you know, looking at Brazil, right, we've seen that the country's politicians have really set aside a lot of the partisan debate that was going on before this. And and it was highly polarizing. Uh, And to come together and to try to work out a response um, to really help the companies and the people in Brazil survive this. And so I would almost end on a note of hope, right? That yes, there are challenges. Yes, disinformation is a problem. But we are also seeing actors rise to the occasion And I think that's where I would like to leave this conversation.
0: That's really, I I can't tell you uh, how much I learned from this panel. I think you've been fantastic and you really know your stuff. That's Nina Jankowitz, Ray Zhang, and Anya Prusa, all from the Wilson Center, all from uh, various sections of the Wilson Center and schools and institutes. And I want to thank the uh, sponsorship, the Kennan Institute, the Kissinger Institute, the Brazil Institute, and one of the newest ones, Science and Technology Innovation Program. And thank you very much also to our audience. We had an extraordinarily large number of people tuning in here, and thank you very much for your questions. Please check our website, www.wilsoncenter.org, for the latest information on upcoming events, expert analysis, and uh, turn to the Wilson Center for future events like this. Thank you very much.